0: This is Archive Atlanta, episode 212, Atlanta Student Movement. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shaped the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So this week I am attempting to cover the Atlanta student movement. And I say attempting because there is so much detail to cover, so many different peoples to mention, and I know I've missed things. But I try to remind myself the goal of this podcast is to be brief and thorough and encourage everyone to want to learn and read more about the topics. The Atlanta student movement began in 1960. It really only lasted about two years and it ushered in the transition between Atlanta's old guard civil rights leaders and the younger, more progressive student leaders. It was inspiring to see how these students came together, organized and executed their plans and affected change. When most Americans hear the word sit-in, the association is with Greensboro and the year 1960. But African-Americans had participated in sit-ins as far back as 1939 which took place at a library in Alexandria, Virginia, followed by several more in the 1940s and 50s that were organized by the All-Congress of Racial Equality. And then in 1958, there was a sit-in in Wichita, Kansas, which actually successfully desegregated all of the Dockham drugstores. On February 1st, 1960, four freshmen from the North Carolina Agricultural and Technical College in Greensboro walked into the Woolworth store, sat down at the lunch counter, and were refused service. They stayed until closing, and they arrived the next morning with 25 more students. On the third day, 63 students joined the sit-in, and by the end of the week, more than 300 demonstrators were at the store. Six months later, after more demonstrations and a boycott, the four freshmen returned and were served at Woolworth's lunch counter. Their actions sparked a movement across America's Black college students, and Atlanta, with its six HBCUs, was very inspired. Let me set the stage of Atlanta's progress or lack thereof in 1960. While black officers had been hired in 1948, they still could not work alongside white police. Atlanta had 42 parks. Only three were for black residents. Of 12 public swimming pools, three were for black people. Of 4,000 available hospital beds, only 780 were available for them. Schools were still segregated, even though Brown v. Board of Education had happened six years prior. Grady Hospital was segregated. There was no black aldermen or board of education members. And so there were already some movements from the students. In February of 1960, the Atlanta Committee for the Cooperative Action, which was a coalition of young black Atlantans, including Jesse Hill, Grace Towns Hamilton and Whitney Young, produced a survey of conditions for black people in Atlanta called A Second Look, the Negro Citizen in Atlanta. On February 3rd, 1960, three Morehouse students, Lonnie King, Joseph Pierce, and Julian Bond, met at Yates and Milton Drugstore on Fair Street with the goal of inspiring all the students from the AUC, Morehouse, Atlanta University, Clark College, Interdenominational Theological Center, Morris Brown, and Spelman, to organize similar demonstrations in Atlanta. Just two days later, they held a meeting on Morehouse's campus with 15 students, mainly Morehouse men, but also James Felder from Clark. And before any protests were organized, the students were called to a meeting in front of the Atlanta University Center Council of Presidents. So each of the school presidents shared their support, but they urged the student leaders to announce their plans publicly. They formed the Committee on Appeal for Human Rights and drafted what was called an Appeal for Human Rights written primarily by Spellman's Rosalind Pope, with contributions from Lonnie King, Julian Bond, Herschel Sullivan, Carolyn Long, and Morris Dillard. It was approved and signed by a student leader from each of the schools. So Willie Mays, president of the Dormitory Council for the Students of Atlanta University, James Felder, president of Student Government Association for the Students of Clark College, Marion Bennett, president of Student Association for the Students of Interdenominational Theological Center, Don Clark, president of the student body for the students of Morehouse College, Marianne Smith, secretary of student government association for the students of Morris Brown College, and Rosalind Pope, president of the student government association for the students of Spelman. On March 9th, 1960, an appeal for human rights was printed as an advertisement, full-page advertisement, in the Atlanta Constitution, the Atlanta Journal, and the Daily World. It would later be published in the Times, but this is just this first time. The students pledged their support for the student movement across the U.S. and declared that they will not wait for full rights. They detailed seven specific categories of grievances that Atlanta had. Education, basically black Georgians could not attend publicly state-funded schools that were white-only. Jobs housing, black people are 32% of the city's population, only allowed to live in 16% of the city, lack of voting rights, lack of hospital beds, segregation of movies, concerts, and restaurants, and law enforcement of 830 officers, only 35 were black. Governor Vandiver called the document a, quote, left-wing statement calculated to breed dissatisfaction, discontent, discord, and evil, end quote, which he also said followed the line of the usual anti-American propaganda— Atlanta Mayor Hartsfield had a different tune saying it, quote, performs the constructive service of letting white community know what others are thinking, end quote, and that this, quote, is one of greatest importance to the city of Atlanta, which proudly proclaims that it is a city too busy with progress to tear itself apart in the atmosphere of hatred, recriminations, and destructive violence, end quote. Six days after the publication, on March 15, 1960, the sit-ins commenced at precisely 11.30 a.m. in 10 white-only lunch counters across downtown and into Midtown. 200 students dispersed among the lunch establishments, which included City Hall, the State Capitol, the Fulton County Courthouse, s s Cafeteria, which was inside an office building at Petrie and Baker, Sprayberry's Cafeteria, which was inside an office building at Petrie and Seventh. And both of those, the reason they chose those both office buildings was though they had majority federal office tenants. And then also the Union and Terminal train stations and the Greyhound and Trailway bus stations and Crest Department Store on Broad Street. While there was no violence, 77 people were arrested 59 by Atlanta police using a brand new law, HB 1112, that was passed swiftly just a month prior to specifically fight against sit-ins. So this had made it a misdemeanor to stay in a place of business when asked to leave by management. 18 others were arrested by state and local officers using that same law, but also including two other state laws. One that made it unlawful to assemble to commit unlawful acts, and another that made it unlawful to assemble to disturb the peace. All the people arrested were released on $300 bonds paid for by QV Williamson, Ralph Long, Charles Bell, Reverend MLK Sr., Reverend B.J. Johnson, and Reverend E. Searcy. One of the people arrested was actually Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s brother, A.D. Um, And in general, the student organizers really considered this a win. And so they sat down with downtown business leaders for discussions, but no progress was made. Just two months later, on May 17th, the students planned a march to the Georgia State Capitol in honor of the sixth anniversary of Brownford's Board of Education. The governor warns they would not be welcome. He had the lawn sprinklers turned on and he had fire hoses connected to the hydrants waiting. And again, Mayor Hartsfield takes a slightly different tune. He tells state officials not to use force and to, quote, invite them inside to see the wonderful museum, end quote. That day, about 2,300 to 3,000 people began their walk, marching two by two, keeping to the sidewalks, and rarely speaking. Lonnie King was leading the group. As they neared the Capitol, it's either the chief of police or somebody high up in the police, basically intercepted. He spoke with Lonnie, and he decided to turn the group. So they turned, they started walking to Wheat Street Baptist. And as they began to approach Wheat Street, the crowd began to sing, We Shall Overcome. Inside Wheat Street Baptist, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was there. Um, he gave them a r- rousing speech. He also said that old man segregation is dying. The only thing left to do is bury him. Now, there was some discussion, even publicly and, and in the kind of white newspapers, that the old guard, again, the older civil rights fighter, the, you know, Daddy King and the John Wesley Dobbses were not supportive of the students and so there is a mass meeting held at weed street again about a week later where the students receive kind of an unequivocal support from older black civil rights leaders as the semester ends and the summer begins, the entire thing kind of lays dormant for a few months. In June, Lonnie King, Carolyn Long, and Dr. and Mrs. Zinn attempted to dine at the Magnolia Room inside Rich's. They were not allowed. No one is arrested, but apparently Lonnie was taken to a meeting with the police chief and Dick Rich um, of Riches. And apparently, again, the story is that Dick Rich waiting for Lonnie. And he explains that, you know, he's been very benevolent to black causes. He does not want to be targeted by the sit-in movement. And then he threatens Lonnie with jail if he brings himself back to one of his restaurants. In August, the students organized a meal in where 25 black men and women attended six segregated churches, including First Baptist, Druid Hill Baptist, uh, First Presbyterian, St. Mark's, Grace Methodist, and the Cathedral of St. Philip. There was no incidents of violence there. Um, Generally, about a third of the churches actually allowed students to remain in the service or watch it from another room. The most welcoming that I read was really St. Mark's. Um, Apparently, an usher first came up and said, no, sorry, this is not an integrated church. And then a second official was like, you guys have every right to be here and brought out three chairs for them to sit in because um, all the seats were full. So by September, school is about to start again. City leaders are really looking to Atlanta's HBCU officials to quell the student movement. And Benjamin E. May is speaking as part of the Council of Presidents states that they will continue their policy of non-interference in anti-segregation activities. And he says, quote, it was a student affair and whatever happens in the fall will also be a student affair, end quote. So with the fall semester starting just before a major presidential election, the students had a very kind of renewed vigor and they were going to use this election race between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon to their advantage. And I don't think anyone understood like how much this national presidential race is going to be influenced by this Atlanta event. Lonnie King reached out to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and asked that he join the students in their riches protest and that he be willing to be arrested. So as the country was debating civil rights on a national scale, the nation would be watching the student movement in the South. On Wednesday, October 19th, 1960, a handful of businesses were targeted, including the Magnolia Room inside Rich's department store, Davison's, Cress, Woolworth's, and Green's. Now, Rich's Magnolia Room was the ladies' lunch spot. Talked about it in other episodes, I'm sure. It's where you had your bridal showers, you had your lunch fashion shows every day. Um, Just a very fancy place to be. Now, Rich's allowed African Americans to enter. They could not use the restroom, though. I think they were not allowed to try things on or return things. More than 50 demonstrators were arrested outside of Rich's that day. And one among them was Dr. King. With this publicity, almost 2,000 students participated in protests and sit-ins the following afternoon. By Saturday, tensions are at a high. The KKK is leading counter-demonstrations. The movement organizers are calling for more boycotts of downtown businesses. And so in order to restore some order, Mayor Hartsfield releases 22 of the jailed demonstrators, Dr. King among them. But Judge J. Oscar Mitchell of DeKalb County issues a warrant for King's arrest because this incident meant that he violated the terms of probation from a previous traffic offense. So he had had a very minor traffic offense in DeKalb County, was apparently, quote, on probation, and then this arrest in Fulton defaulted that or whatever the word is. So Dr. King is transferred from Fulton County to DeKalb County, and then after sentencing from the judge, he's transferred from Reidsville Prison to do hard labor on a chain gang. During his public comments, Mayor Hartsfield took it upon himself to mention that Senator Kennedy supported King's release from jail. This hadn't actually happened. It did set off a chain of events, though. JFK makes a personal call to Coretta Scott King to express his sympathies. It's said from that moment, King's father, affectionately called Daddy King, would shift his alliance from the Republican Party to support JFK. Robert Kennedy would make the call to Judge Mitchell over in DeKalb County. And Dr. King was released from prison on October 27th. A marketing pamphlet titled, quote, No Comment Nixon versus a Candidate with a Heart, Senator Kennedy, end quote, was created and passed out at black churches across America that Sunday before the presidential election. And we all know how that turned out, right? Senator Kennedy won the presidency and the black vote was a large role in several states. Because of the student movement and the boycotts, sales in downtown Atlanta businesses were down 13% by the end of 1960, confirming that this was working. In early 1961, the business leaders were finally ready to have a conversation. Now, this in itself, it's probably a whole nother episode, because the deal that was brokered was done without the presence and the input of the Atlanta students who started this whole thing in the first place. Instead, it was between the older black leaders and the white business owners. The agreement was that the stores would willingly desegregate the following fall in conjunction with an already planned integration of local schools. Sit-ins, smaller ones, did continue here and there until that actually happened. And so there you have it, the story of the Atlanta student movement. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to the podcast. There's also a Patreon link in the show notes if you'd like to support the work. I hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.